So it's been a while. Well, I mean, actually not that long, just that a lot of history has happened in the interim. Time, I think, for a quick update. Indeed. So we may or may not be approaching a war in Iran, which I guess is kind of fun. I mean, I know the various arms of the military and the diplomatic corps in the US are having fun with what with the president suggesting war crimes, generals reading out letters about withdrawing troops and then admitting five minutes later said letter was a draft that should never have been admitted to in the first instance. Uh, admittedly, this isn't so much a conspiracy as it is a set of cock-ups. Um, although perhaps the motivating event, the assassination of General Soleimani, is, aside from the lack of congressional approval, the claim Soleimani was behind 9-11. Which he wasn't. Or was about to commit some very bad acts. Although no one can specify what those acts are, how imminent they were, or whether killing him actually stopped their preparation in any way, shape or form. Uh, it all seems awfully close to the cover story for the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. Ooh, too true. Mm, you know, to, to, to find those pesky weapons of mass destruction? Which we couldn't, because the intelligence was made up. You know, because of an actual conspiracy. Mm. Meanwhile, Australia's on fire. It's true. And uh, the reaction by anthropogenic climate change deniers is, is, is very sensible. I Did think. you know the fires are not the result of a natural disaster, but the result of a planned series of arson-based attacks? Mm. Did you know that the people starting the fires are members of the Green Party? Yes, apparently the environmentalists are so tired of not being able to show that climate of Australia is changing that they are starting fires to prove climate change is real. Or if it doesn't strike you as sensible, you could always blame energy weapons owned by the UN, which uh, apparently is a thing. Or if energy weapons are not your thing, causing fire from space, maybe you'd like to blame light rail. According to, you guessed it, Alex Jones, the fires are part of a plan by China to open up parts of Australia to high-speed light rail. Dastardly. But here at the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, we know who is really at fault. It's none other than now. Drumroll, please, Maestro. Who will? In H. Yes, in H, we've been tracking your part in the conspiracy, and the fires in Australia have given the game away. Now, we're not making light of the bushfires. Rather, we are squarely blaming the entire climate change shebang on NH, whose work in the conspiracy has led to, and Josh is going to quote the official record here, uh, arming squids with lighters in order to melt the polar ice caps from beneath the surface. David Bellamy wrote that, so it must be true. Now, things get a little hazy connecting this to the bushfires, but we're sure that with the help of our patrons... Who are all members of the conspiracy, I might add... We will get to the bottom of this. Insert joke about living in an octopus's garden under the sea. Insert laugh here. And with that punchline, let's get on with the show. Ha ha ha! Ha ha ha! Ha ha ha! <laughs> the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Welcome back 
to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. It's 2020. Is how, it? How really? Much, how much more into the future can we possibly get? Well, according to the prophecies of Nostradamus, no further than this. Oh, it's a shame. Yeah, basically this is it. We are on the bleeding edge of the future mm. and we don't get any further than this. So basically it's all over and done with at a particular point in time. So give up hope. Give up hope. You heard it here first. Give up hope from the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. Yes, the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, of course, being me, uh, Josh Edison, and from the looks of things, um, Admiral Holdo, a.k.a. Laura Dern from The Last Jedi. It's true. I'm about to perform the Holdo mm. Maneuver. Uh, you heard it here, folks. For our podcast listeners, Emma, we're in quite a delightful shade of lavender in the hair there. I think it, I It's true, it and you. also in the watch. <clears throat> mm. Mm. Coordinated. You are it's nothing true. if not coordinated. That's right. You can mm. coordinate my watch to certain colours of hair. Yes. Um, now, I suppose before we before we uh, pile straight into the main topic of the episode, we should again say uh, thank you to our patron NH, uh, who has upgraded themselves. They in our have. Estimation. They, they've gone from being someone who wasn't associated with the conspiracy to really outing themselves by paying enough money to be a member of the conspiracy and mentioned in the intro to this podcast. Mm. Um, I mean, I actually don't know what they get out of that other no. than we make fun of them for really? arming squids with lighters to melt the polar ice caps. Mm. You paid for that. You paid for that. Uh, but the point is thank you. I yes, I yes, say. I believe thank you for mm. paying for us to make fun of you. Yeah. Um, so it's a new year. I think maybe you might... Might shake things up a little bit. How are we shaking rebel, things up, rebel Joshua? A few cages? Well, we, we haven't really decided yet. We're thinking about a newsletter. We are. We're thinking about setting up a monthly newsletter you can subscribe to, which will not only have information about the podcast, in case you're one of those people who don't have us in their podcast feeds to remind you to listen to the podcast. It will also update you on things like my various trips around mm. the world and papers I'm working on, books I've written and the like. Kind of be a, a catch-all of information and possibly even academic articles which are free to read on conspiracy theories as they come up. If you subscribe to the newsletter, you might find a bit out about those things and be able to read along. And I suppose if you're one of those people who doesn't actually listen to every episode, it might be useful to have a little digest summarising what's been on in the well, last month, yeah, so I mean, know which ones a... you might be interested in catching up on. Yeah, and telling you about what you've missed out on. So anyway, when that, if and when that eventuates, we'll let you know. And uh, if you think it's a good idea, please let us know and we'll, we'll put our full effort into it, as opposed to half-assing it like I was planning <laughs> on. About, um, which is how you normally it's how do I things. Normally do. If you think it's a terrible idea and you're never, ever going to sign up to it, I mean, you could tell us that, but we probably won't listen. Joe, if you think that it's the kind of thing that will stop you listening to this podcast, and I don't understand why it no. would, but if for some reason you think it would, please do tell us. Now, you mentioned your travelling plans. You're going to be moving around a little bit this year? So there's a conference in Miami in March being organised by Joe Yusinski, and I'll be attending that. So that's in the middle of March, and there's also a conference on fake news in Hong Kong I'll be, I'll be able attending, mm. able attending, I'll be attending in April. So there's some academic stuff going on. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to do some interviews at the conference in Miami. It kind of depends on the timing. Unfortunately, because it's the middle of the teaching semester, not even the middle, the very beginning of the teaching semester at Waikato, where I'll be teaching in semester A of this year, 
I'm basically leaving after one class and then coming back before another class, which means I don't really have much spare time either side of the conference to do much in the way of, say, socializing, touristing, or interviewing. So any interviews I do do for the podcast will be very much in lunch breaks. Hmm. Oh, well, we'll see how all that turns out. Are you spending some time in the Tron? I am. I will be going down to ha Hamilton the middle of February because I'll be teaching there three days a week. It makes no sense to be coming to and fro Auckland, paying rent here and paying for transport down there. It makes much more sense to just be down there. Hmm. Fair enough. So the podcast will also be transitioning back to a Skype-based affair, yes, yes. and we're sorting out the logistics of that for the mm. for the duration. Our, our uh, older viewers may remember we, we we did a lot of skyping back when Em was in Romania and so on. And um, yeah, Skype Skype kind of went downhill quite markedly. Call qualities did drop off. Yes, I mean the the sound's never been terrible, but the video has been. Yes, has been no, terrible. There's, there's been, has been, been stuttering and cutting yeah. out, and yes, and so on and so forth. So we'll we'll see what we can do. But anyway, that's that's in the future. And the future is not now. No. You know what is now? Thursday. Present giving. <gasps> because Josh has both had a Christmas and a birthday. I have. I do do that. Between the end of the podcast and the resumption of the podcast. Now, this. For people who are watching the video, is Josh's birthday present, which I'm not going to give to him now. It'd be more appropriate for next week's episode, as you will see next week. So let's just throw this gift away and instead give Josh his Christmas gift belatedly. So Merry Christmas, me old chum. Why, thank you. Am I supposed to open it now on uh, camera? I mean, you should try and make as much noise as okay. possible for the podcast right. version. Otherwise, this visual Stop thing the, doesn't work at all. the old microphone right yep. there. Why, it is Conspiracy Theories, Philosophers Connect the Dot, edited by Richard Green and Rachel Robertson Green. I wonder um, if I were to... Look at the contents look at page. Look the contents page, might... I might find now, a there, now, there, you, there is also a, a dedication there, I but did you don't see need the to actually read it out, because it might actually be salacious. To be honest, I, 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 t I like to keep them between you and I. I see recent releases from this publisher include RuPaul's Drag Race and Philosophy. Interesting. But yep. yes, I, I do notice the name of a certain MRX Dentith uh, in part one of this book, and I look also, forward to reading that Also, chapter three is written by someone who we know in this, in, in this podcast universe Good Lord, as well. it's Charles Pigden as well. It is indeed. Mm. So at least two good chapters. Excellent. Who knows, there might be more. There you go. That book, I, I assume, is available for people to purchase. You haven't broken into your publisher's offices in the dead of night or just some daring or just, or just as a Christmas gift created a book mm. whole cloth yep so I, I assume people may be interested in, in purchasing this book yeah at some it's uh, actually tell them about who the publisher is uh the pub where is where is the publisher I don't know it's open court in Chicago that's the one, that's the one. there you go open court in Chicago mm. they do the whole bunch of philosophy and books and they've done one on conspiracy theories and I've got the first chapter uh, one of the editors of this book co-edited The Princess Bride and Philosophy, colon, inconceivable. Inconceivable? I don't I'm think I know what that word means. No, I don't think anyone does anymore. Right, I will thank you very much, but I think perhaps it is time that we blast forward into the main topic for this episode. Which requires going back to the 80s. W wouldn't we all, if we could? No, actually, the 80s were a bit shit. They really, really were. Let's go back to the 80s. Yep.
On the 26th of December 1980, a series of strange lights were reported by a security patrol near the east gate of RAF Woodbridge in the UK, which was at the time being used by the American Air Force. These lights were then seen descending into nearby Rendlesham Forest. At first it was thought that personnel were witnessing the downing of an aircraft, but upon entering the forest they saw, according to some witnesses and an official report, a glowing metallic object covered with coloured lights. Said object then flew away. The police were called to the scene, but the only lights they could see came from the Orford Ness Lighthouse some kilometres away. The next morning personnel returned to the site and found three small impressions in a triangular pattern on the ground, as well as burn marks and broken branches on nearby trees. A day later, personnel returned to the site once more with radiation detectors, which picked up anomalous readings. This investigation was recorded on microcassette by Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt. They witnessed a flashing light to the east as well as lights in the sky which seemed to beam down streams of light from time to time. The Rendlesham incident has never been solved. This is the point in time where it's just been much easier to put in the Unsolved Mysteries adaptation mm. of this with Robert Stack. Is he still alive? No, he's quite dead. Yes. To, to the point where they actually had to get they had to replace him in the final series uh -huh. of Unsolved Mysteries with someone from NYPD Blue, Dennis Farina. They replaced yeah. Robert Stack with Dennis Farina. Dennis Farina is no Robert Stack. No, really, no, no Robert Stack. And with that, the chime. <laughs> So, the Rendlesham Incident, known as Britain's Roswell. Mm, yes, the, the similarities there are fairly striking. It's perhaps the most, uh, I guess, well-known or, yeah, or yeah. certainly well most talked about um, UFO sighting in Britain. Um, it happened close to uh, a military base, much two, like Roswell actually, area. Two military two bases, yeah. ROF Woodbridge, which we mentioned in the intro, and also RAF Bent, Bent Waters, which basically is, you've got Rendlesham Forest in the south of England, and you've got a military base to the east of Ren Ren Rendlesham and a military base to the north, and the incident kind of occurs almost in between the two. Mm. Um, so the incident is as we as we spoke in the intro, um, mysterious mysterious lights in the sky, objects moving around, um, uh, marks seen the next day, and then um, uh, the thing I guess that, that makes it the most noteworthy is this the the, the micro cassette recording and the actual documentation of this by military personnel. Yeah, so it's important to note that the Rendlesham incident of a UFO, and we're using UFO here in its traditional sense of unidentified flying object. These days we call it a UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, was witnessed by both American Air Force personnel and also British Air Force personnel. So RAF, Woodbridge and Bentwater were being used at the time by the American military, but they were being governed by the Brits, because it was occurring was on English. British soil. Yeah. Mm. So, um, as we say, uh, possibly it's it's worth pointing out straight away. It was the twenty sixth and twenty eighth uh, in the, in the wee hours of the morning. I think it's about three a.m. in the morning. Yep. I think on the twenty sixth and a similar time on the twenty eighth is when these things happen. 
we, as we will see, there's a bit of confusion around the dates, but that appears to not be in any way sinister, merely uh, an artifact of slightly dodgy memories. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a big topic. The Fortean Times, I understand, likes to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, so the Fortean Times, if those of you don't read the Fortean Times, and why don't you? Josh, do you read the Fortean Times? No, not, not regularly, no. no. I have read the Fortean Times. So the Fortean Times is a magazine. It's the Journal of the Fortean Society which deals with Fortean phenomena, which tends to be phenomena which is largely unexplained or at least is at the point where there are multiple explanations and Forteans are at a, at a liberty to choose which explanation they take. And the Fortean Times is being quite focused, given it's a British pub publication, on the British Roswell incident, in part because the person who writes on ufology in the Fortean Times is Jenny Randalls, and she's been a major investigator of the Rendlesham incident, although she does call it the Rendlesham incident, because many ufologists in the UK take a rather negative view of what happened in Rendlesham, as we will see. By which you mean... Uh, they think that the UFO sighting itself is dodgy, or do, uh, are they suggesting some sort of a cover-up? No, they think the actual right. sighting itself is dodgy. Good, because that's what I have notes on. Good. Um, Otherwise, this would go in a very different direction. Yes. So I think we, we there's the um, there's the audio tape, which is, what, 18 minutes long. Which was uh, taken on the second night. Taken so, on the second night. So we should yep. point out, there are, there are two separate nights, and mm -hmm. they're separated by a day. We've got the 26th and the 27th. The 26th is the initial report where personnel belonging to the various air forces saw something which happened near Woodbridge. And then the next day, there was an investigation looking at the material left behind. And then the night afterwards, there was a subsequent investigation looking at the sites, at which point people saw other things. Mo the recorded document, which is a micro-cassette recording by Lieutenant Colonel Holt, relates to the second night, mm -hmm. where they saw lights in the sky, it doesn't relate to the first night where people actually witnessed what they claimed was a downed UFO. Yes. Now, the, the recording, I mean, it's it's a, a tape recorder out in the middle of the night from the 1980s. The, the audio quality is not spectacular. We, we could play you bits of it, but I don't think you'd get much from them. It would sound a little bit like mm. this, where you've got people talking like this the entire time. And actually, whether this actually picks up on my microphone is an entirely different issue. High on a hill with a lonely goat herd, yay to lay to lady ho. Mm. Um, but... Also, on the 13th of January, uh, now 1981, so a couple of weeks after the fact, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Holt um, wrote a memo to, which was sent to the uh, British Ministry of Defence um, summarising the incident, incident, which I think is small enough that we can probably read the whole thing out in total. Although what I'm going to point out, the... this memo's never been classified. No. no so this is a memo to the Ministry of Defence by a senior commander of an RAF base in England about a suspected UFO phenomena, and it's never been classified by the Ministry of Defence. No. It's kind of important, Take that as we'll say. Um, so the memo uh, has the subject, Unexplained Lights, and it's in three sections. Um, the first section reads, one... 
Early in the morning of 27 December, as we know this is actually 26 December, but a couple of weeks later after the fact he, he seems to have got his dates muddled, uh, approximately 0300 hours, two USAF uh, security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. The individuals reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, approximately two to three metres across the base and approximately two metres high. It illuminated the entire forest with a white light. The object itself had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs. As the patrolman approached the object, it manoeuvred through the trees and disappeared. At this time, the animal on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was briefly sighted approximately an hour later near the back gate. Paragraph two, and they are actually they are actually not num mm. not numbered here. The next day, three depressions, one and a half foot deep and seven foot in diameter. That's you know that's it's inches. Inches, sorry. That would be a big hole. Imperial measurements, mm. I mean, it's just it's just Sort weird. your stuff out. In diameter, were found where the object had been sighted on the ground. The following night, the 29th of December, 1980, the area the was checked for radiation. Beta gamma readings of 0.1 milli... Oh, I can never get this right. Rentgens. were recorded with peak recordings in the three depressions and near the centre of the triangle formed by the depressions. A nearby tree had moderate... 0.05 to 0.07 readings on the side of the tree towards the depressions. And finally, section three. Later in the night, a red sun-like light was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately thereafter, three starlight objects, sorry, star-like objects were noticed in the sky, two objects to the north and one to the south, all of which are about 10 degrees off the horizon. The objects moved rapidly in sharp angular movements and displayed red, green, and blue lights. The objects to the north appeared to be elliptical through an 8 to 12 power lens. They then turned to full circles. The objects to the north remained in the sky for an hour or more. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light from time to time. Numerous individuals, including the undersigned, witnessed the activities in paragraphs two and three, signed Charles L. Holt, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force Deputy Base Commander. So, I mean, that, that's an official report made by... It is, and unclassified. Mm. Um, so, I mean, obviously, that, that, that raises a lot of eyebrows. You, you don't get to be a deputy base commander if you're, a, if, if you're given to flights of fancy, one would have thought. Um, and yet, as you say, people are not super convinced by this, or anyone who's looked into it, at least, doesn't appear to be super convinced by it. So the first issue is... The dates which are wrong. Mm. Now, that might be because the memo is several weeks after the event in question. So you have a problem here where Holt is simply misremembering the days events actually occurred. And the thing is, we know from other contemporaneous reporting, which includes reports to the police and reports to the media, that something did happen around these dates, just that Holt has got the days out by exactly one. Mm. So the anomalies here are Commander Holt not doing due diligence and checking his diary, 
Although, as we'll see later on in this conversation, this has a flow-on effect which actually leads to doubts about other aspects of the story. It does. Now, I mean, Holt, Holt is kind of speaking for everyone involved when he, he writes this memo, but um, when you look at the actual accounts from other witnesses, they're not, they're not all identical. The, the nature of the lights, the colours of the lights, exactly what was seen and where and, and, where and so on, um, do differ. Holt himself, as the years have gone by, it seems has become more vocal about this. He, he believes he saw an extraterrestrial event and he believes that it has been covered up. Um, apparently in uh, 2010, he signed a, a registered or notarized or whatever it is affidavit um, saying as much. Um, and I believe uh, when we get into it, who was the other one? Uh, Staff Sergeant Jim Peniston also. Oh, yeah, um, we've got a lot to say about him. Has, has been very vocal about things. So, I mean, the, the the one account that everybody looks at is not universally agreed upon, which I think is the first no, thing. No, and to actually, say. importantly, the accounts made by the service personnel in the days after the incident are remarkably different by the reports made to them several later, several years after mm. the incident. So the initial incident is we saw something unusual. Several years later, the stories are a lot more verbose, including the touching of objects that no one reported even seeing in the first instance. Mm. Now, I mean, for instance, um, Dr. David Clark, who's an investigative journalism, um, he, he's looked into Rendlesham and didn't seem particularly convinced. In particular, after uh, Lieutenant Colonel Holt um, made his affidavit in 2010, uh, Dr. Clark sort of looked around and interviewed um, Colonel, what's his first name? Tom, I think it was. Tom, Ted, sorry. Colonel Ted Conrad, who was the base commander, who Lieutenant Colonel Holt um, was the deputy was, was deputy too. Um, he said, we saw nothing that resembled Lieutenant Colonel Holt's descriptions either in the sky or on the ground. Now, again, this is 2010. This is 30 years after the effect, uh, after the fact. But, um, yeah, there, there, there do seem to be um, some differences about what actually... Uh, the, the specifics of what actually happened. But, I mean, there are some things I think everybody seems to be consistent about. People saw lights in the sky. People saw marks on the ground. People saw marks on the trees. Um, what can we say about that? Well, let's talk about what the police thought about it when they investigated it the next day. Mm -hmm. So the police turned up at the site of the supposed Lando. And they looked at the marks on the ground, which were taken to be in a triangular fashion and indicate kind of either landing feet or landing force. And they thought that these were old rabbit diggings that had been covered up with pine needles. Yes, yeah, some sort of just animal animal marks seem to be the um, be, be their initial uh, conclusion. And these would have been people looking at it in the cold light of day. Indeed. They also thought that the supposed burn marks in the trees were actually just axe cuts made by foresters indicating which trees in the clearing needed to be felled. Mm. Now, when it comes to the lights in the sky, apparently there was a bunch going on in the sky around the 26th of December. There was a meteor shower. There was a Russian rocket whose um, first stage would have been burning up in the atmosphere around them. So it's possible there were um, phenomena in the sky that people witnessed. Um, but then that's see, seeing seeing sort of shooting stars or whatever is different, I suppose, from saying you saw lights moving through the forest and illuminating the whole forest and so on. Um, but then we, we do get to the matter of Orford Ness Lighthouse. Well, yes. So 
If you draw a direct line between RAF Woodbridge through Rendlesham Forest to, I believe, the east, then in the distance you have a lighthouse. The thing about lighthouses is that they have revolving lights, which means that at a distance, you would see if you were mistaking Orford Ness for not being a lighthouse, a light pulse mm. occurring with some amount of regularity. Because you'd be looking at a lighthouse where the light is rotating consistently and then pulsing in your direction. Mm. Now, um, we obviously are not only not the first people to talk about this, we're, not, we're far from the first podcast to talk about no. this. Um, uh, the Skeptoid podcast uh, looked at this in January of 2009, as I discovered doing a bit of research for this. And uh, Brian Dunning, who runs the Skeptoid podcast, uh, has basically done all the research for us, really. He, if you want, um, episode 135 is the one where he talks about it. I, I, it's actually old enough that um, their older episodes are now archived and you need to be a, a sponsor of them to get at them. But the transcript of it is available on his website. And if you're interested in, in a... In a, in a debunking, I guess, of the Rendlesham incident. I'd, I'd definitely recommend going to look at it. But in particular, when it comes to the lighthouse, um, lighthouses uh, make public the specific interval that they, they flash on because that allows ships to identify exactly which lighthouse they're looking yeah. at. Um, Orford Ness Lighthouse has an interval of five seconds. And um, in, the, in this episode of the Skeptoid podcast, uh, Mr. Dunning actually goes and takes the section of a tape recording where these Yemen start talking about what's that light over there um, and places beeps in it at five second intervals and they basically line up perfectly with this guy saying, what was that light? Well, there it is again. There it is again. And with the timing in it, you can see it's exactly every five seconds that they're seeing this mysterious So what you're saying, Josh, is that the UFO was able to replicate the phenomena of a lighthouse that's pretty clever by alien intelligence. Mm. It does seem that way. Now, uh, apparently, for one thing, some of the airmen who were out there that night didn't know there was a lighthouse nearby, so it wouldn't have occurred to a, to a lot of them you know, that maybe that's what it was. Apparently, Lieutenant Colonel Holt did know about the existence of the lighthouse, but thought it was in a different direction, and it seemed was slightly confused about exactly which way they were looking, and so thought, no, it, he thought, oh, it can't be the lighthouse because the lighthouse should be in a different direction, but was most likely um, mistaken. And it does say something about the fact that these are people walking out at night in the middle of a forest, uh, which means if there are lights in the sky or anything, they're going to be disappearing and seemingly moving around as they go behind trees and things, which you wouldn't be able to see in, in, the, in the darkness of night either. Um, which I think has been the explanation in some other cases of UFO sightings. There's the famous one, the, um, the couple from whom the first recovered memory alien abduction experience the hills the hills yes yeah. i've heard i've i've heard an explanation of their their um experiences having seen this light that was supposedly moving all over the sky has been written down to actually you know there, there is a light over there it's completely stationary but as you're winding through roads going up and down hills and around forests it would look like in, it was actually moving mm, around it's and entirely possible it. at night it's entirely yeah. possible to sort of lose your bearings and think that this thing which is standing still has actually moved to a different direction so i suspect there could well be a bit of that going on as well. Now there's another issue here which is if there really was an incident occurring there 
you would expect the British Secret Services to do something about it. And this actually did lead to a debate in Parliament. So Admiral Lord Hill Norton, who is the former chief of the UK Defence Staff, argued in Parliament that an incident like Rendlesham at a nuclear weapons base, which Woodbridge was, was necessarily of national security interest. And in reply, Baroness Simmons of Vernon Dean gave the reply that special branch officers may have been aware of the incident, but would not have shown any interest unless there was evidence of a potential threat to national security. No such interest appears to have been shown. So the Baroness is going, if there really was an unexplained incident going on in Rendlesham, we would have investigated it. Mm, yes, they're, they're not likely to sit on their thumbs when wacky, wacky things are going along uh, near a military base. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Admiral Hill Norton sort of commented, either large numbers of people were hallucinating and for an American Air Force nuclear base that's extremely dangerous, or what they say happened did happen and in either of those circumstances there can be only one answer and that, and that is that it was of extreme defence interest. But I don't think that's is the only answer. It could be that people did see things, but as we're seeing... And then upon investigation, saw, people went, actually, mm. you were kind of mistaken about what you saw, so let's not embarrass ourselves by talking about this any further. Mm. Now, there was a large MOD file made on the Rendlesham incident, of which parts continue to be secret or private. And this has led to people going, oh, well, that is evidence of a cover-up of some kind. The government knew exactly what's going on there. The only problem is, given the Rendlesham incident was such major news at the time, there would be a large file, because that file will include every single news clipping about the incident, which has to be put into storage. Mm. So it might be the case the file is large because of a cover-up. It's also quite possible the file is large because it was of national interest and thus generated a large amount of information. Mm. It's in uh, Project Blue Book as well, isn't it? The American Air Force's yeah. record yeah. of... of um, as was actually, there's apparently uh, earlier back in 1956, there was another UFO sighting by RAF Bentwaters, which is less spectacular, basically. I think it was... An, it was either visual contact or radar contact or both of of something zipping through the skies, but um, didn't didn't uh, doesn't have nearly as much attention as the no. Rendlesham incident. No, and, uh, certainly less evidence. Speaking of evidence, maybe it is now time to talk about Staff Sergeant Jim Peniston. Indeed. So one of the investigators of Rendlesham, James Easton, actually managed to get the original witness statements that were made by Colonel Holt by the personnel who witnessed the event on the 26th. And the most interesting bit of witness statement here belongs that to Staff Sergeant... Staff Sergeant? Sergeant. Close Isn't enough. So it's like Staff a fish. Sergeant Jim Peniston of the 81st Security Police Squadron. Now, his statement is the only one amongst the one, two, three, four people who made statements that positively identifies a mechanical object as the source of the light. Now, he claims that at the time that they entered the clearing where the lights were present, he got within 50 meters of the object and saw it was definitely mechanical in nature and that 
he was able to circle, touch, and make note of the object for 45 minutes, despite the fact that other witnesses say as soon as they entered the clearing, the object flew away, and claims that he was able to write down those notes and what he thought about them in a notebook at the time. Mm. Yes, now I think it seems even more so than Lieutenant Colonel Holt, um, Staff Sergeant Peniston's accounts of the event have have become more elaborate as the years have gone by. Indeed. In particular, this um, this notebook of his, his observations that he apparently uh, um, showed in a television interview. Um, he had he had this notebook full of notes and sketches that he apparently made of the object at the time. At despite, the time. Despite the say fact, at the time. At the time. Despite the fact that the other eyewitnesses have no memory of him spending 45 minutes walking around sketching in a Because to them, they walked into the clearing and the object flew away almost immediately. Mm. Now, an interesting thing is that the notebook is headed with the date 27 December, which, as we know, was not the date when they were out. It was actually the 26th of December, but it is the date that appears at the top of Lieutenant Colonel's memo, which does make one wonder... Did they did uh, Staff Sergeant Peniston get the date from the memo, which was written two weeks after the fact, uh, in coming up with this notebook, which would suggest that it was not something written in real yeah, time? Yes. So all in the indications way. are that the diary, which indicates the notes of the incident, was written well after the fact. Yeah. Um. And I think that's about it. It's uh, uh, the Skeptoid podcast. Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast uh, sums up his episode by basically saying that when you look at the whole thing, you've got a whole whole lot of of dodgy evidence, and a whole lot of bad evidence does not add up to a single bit of good evidence. Unfortunately, there are lots of things going on which, when you look at them all, do paint quite a quite a, a vivid yeah. picture, and yet taken individually, each one of them can be explained by fairly to, uh, mundane things. Unless you're Robert Stack, because Unsolved mm. Mysteries did an episode on Rendlesham, and Robert Stack makes it sound very convincing that something mysterious happened at Rendlesham. Mm. And I suppose one thing we didn't mention, though, is that um, in terms of the supposed cover-up, there are some stories given that um, these... these um, Yemen, who were debriefed afterwards and so on, were ordered to keep very quiet about it. Even the phrase, uh, bullets are cheap, was supposedly um, mentioned to them, implying that they could be killed for speaking out about this. Now, um, uh, the likes of Lieutenant Colonel Holt and Staff Sergeant Peniston have not been shy about talking this over the years. No, Holt's actually been very, mm. very vocal about the entire story. And apparently they, there was no official debriefing on the subject either. Uh, so that does kind of seem to be made up from the whole cloth. Um, I think the only other interesting thing to say, perhaps, is to come back to uh, Dr. David Clark. Indeed. Now, in, in late 2018, there were a bunch of um, stories in, in British newspapers about how the Rendlesham incident has been solved. And they claimed, referring to something that um, Dr. Clark had written, that uh, it had been shown that the whole thing was a hoax. It was, in fact, a prank perpetrated by the SAS. Interesting. Tell this, me about the SAS pranking so, the USAF. According to this story, um, in August of 1980, the SAS had tried to sneak in um, to uh, RAF thingy, not Woodbridge. Woodbridge, um, 
to, to basically sort of to test their security to see if they could sneak into these Americans to, to check whether things were secure enough. They parachuted in thinking that the Americans' radar wouldn't detect their parachutes, not knowing that the Americans had actually recently upgraded their radar facilities, were able to, uh, to detect them. The Americans captured the SAS agents, tied them up, had a little bit of fun at their expense, referred to them as unidentified aliens, meaning aliens in the more, more terrestrial sense. Yeah. Not, um, as in damn foreigners. Yep. And, uh, and, and let them go um, feeling somewhat sorry for themselves. And so the idea was that to then get back at them for the, the way they were treated, the SAS rigged up a whole bunch of flashing lights and silver balloons and remote-controlled stuff um, to give those Yankees a bit of a scare. Now, unfortunately, these newspaper articles who are appealing to Dr. Clark's testimony about this appear to have got this story from a blog post that Dr. Clark put on his blog, but that blog post was debunking this story, not actually putting it forwards as a hypothesis for, Interesting. for what had happened. He, yeah. he basically says, here is the story, rattles through the whole thing, and then basically says why he doesn't think it's at all convincing, and this just appears to be a funny story someone's, someone's come up with. So, Which is a little bit like the so-called headlight story that was put forward at the time, that it was a prank made by someone pranking the staff at RAF Woodbridge by driving a jeep through the forest with their headlights on, and thus leading to a kind of chase, and the person behind that went, yeah, I mean, I did do that, but not at those particular dates, so you're kind of backporting a prank I performed to explain Rendlesham, and that doesn't work. Mm. So... It's all a little bit deflating in the end, I guess. Really, the the, the evidence that it was something you know, the the the, um, the uh, what, how would you describe it? dramatic? I guess is the best word. The dramatic yep. uh, scope of it all, the the official testimony, the the actual tape recording that you know, while it's rubbish quality, it is you know you've got these these soldiers creeping around at night saying, "What was that thing over there? Did you see that?" And so on and so forth. It it has a, has a nice air of drama to it, but unfortunately, you, you kind of all just comes crashing down to earth to the yeah. extent that even the claims about about wacky amusing hoaxes turn out to be themselves not true either it's a little bit of a no. shame really but we will be returning mm. back to Rendlesham next week we will we will be returning to Rend Rendlesham next week because there's a there's a rhyme and a reason to this episode mm. we needed to talk about Rendlesham this was actually uh, unbeknownst to all of you laying the groundwork for, for episode 250 which is what number it will be next, next week. week. Indeed. Mm. But next week is next week's mm. affair. This week is over and done with. And when we say things over and done with, we mean they're over and done with, right? Well, no, they're over and done with for you, our regular listener, who who, who we do like quite quite a lot. Um, but not as much as the people we're about to talk about. No. Uh, our patrons, of course, get this week's bonus episode where we'll be doing a bit of a run-through of what's been going. It's probably going to be short. I mean, not much has happened in the last year. No, I mean, there's been no issues in the Middle East. No. And there's been no issues with Trump. And there's been no QAnon issues. There's been no Epstein updates. There definitely hasn't been any updates about Alex Jones and Sandy Hook. Or, indeed, updates about what's going on in Australia. Mm. Oh, so, there's nothing going I don't, on in but Australia I'm sure, I'm, at all. I'm sure we'll make up something uh, oh, we to will. fill the time. We will. Uh, so that's that's what our, uh, our patrons can look forward to. Uh, for the rest of you, um, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for our 250th episode. But until then, keep, keep watching the skies. Keep watching the skis. Mm.
are we allowed to say that? Like, like legally, is it copyright or anything? I mean, just pretend that it's I was relevant. reading a, it's, I it's I'm reading a script and read skies incorrectly. I mean, mm. that's plausible. I've mm. misread a lot of things in my time. Mm. Haven't we all? Keep watching the skis. 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 You and that bloody Joker serum. You've got to stay off it. It's not good for you. I haven't even watched that film. Mm. Oh, no, I haven't watched that one. It's rubbish. Toodle pip. Yep. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extenter, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. Remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it. <laughs> no more hanging around with the Joker for you, I say.